you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 21. You, you might want to stay there this morning to be able to reference passages as I go back and forth. But I want to read verses 1 through 11 to get started. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So... <clears throat> Before getting to this exact passage, I want some big context for maybe anybody that's just stumbled into this sermon series. God has set Israel free from the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh and Egypt. He has led them through the Red Sea. He has fed them with manna. He has given them water from the rock. And he has brought them to Mount Sinai where he had promised that he would bring them. They worship there at Mount Horeb. And... He gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And the Ten Commandments are what the Bible is referring to when it says the law of God. They are forever, right? They do not cease to be. They still have bearing today. Now, in Exodus chapter 21, God begins to give His people laws to govern them. And there are a handful of these laws that many Christians and non-Christians and people alike tend to find very problematic. They point to passages like this one and say, well, this is why you can't trust the Bible. And their two basic arguments are, number one, you can't, you know, God can't be a good God if he's condoning slavery. Or, number two, well, we don't keep that part of the Bible anymore, so who gets to say what parts of the Bible you do keep and what parts you don't? And so, it's just kind of like you don't know, you can't trust any of it, you just kind of like, I just follow God in my own heart. What we're going to find is that both arguments against the Bible are foolish. We're going to see that today as we study this text. What I am about to do with this text is easily done with any other text that you would want to point to to say, well, what about the character of God here? What about the character of God there? This is one of the harder, more difficult passages. And so I've chosen this. This is the only section of the civil laws that we are going to deal with in this sermon series. And what we do with slavery here, how we see to rightly interpret the Word of God, it applies to all the civil laws that you would want to possibly point to and say, well, what about this thing and what about that thing? So, I want us to hit this head on. I want us to look at it. I want us to see that there's danger when fools make assertions about the Word of God when they don't understand the context, they don't understand who it's written to, they don't understand why it's written, they don't understand the time frame in which it was written. There's a, there's a lot of times they don't even understand words, which is what we're going to see. So, let's get started. 
I have a big intro this morning before getting to the thrust and the heart of what this text is really about, but there's some things we just cannot overlook. So, number one, the first thing I want to do is clarify what the word slave means. We see the word slave here many times, and our minds go straight to the type of forced slavery that, you know, we were taught about in American education uh, concerning slaves that were brought over from other countries. Our minds go to people in shackles, um, held against their will, um, you know, stolen and then sold by slave traders. That's, when we hear the word slavery, that's where our mind goes. Look what the Bible says about that kind of slavery, slavery in Exodus 21 and verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So clearly, that form of slavery is punishable by death for anybody even participating in that form of slavery. If you weren't able to do the math, you know where that verse is found? Five verses after the ones we just read. No, the author is not confused. They are entirely two different forms of slavery that share the same word. We find that forced slavery is punishable by death in the exact same chapter where masters are told how they need to treat their slaves. This word it can mean slave in the way that we in modern day English think about slave. It can mean that. And in verse 16, that's exactly what it means. But it can also mean a servant. The word can mean minister as one who is caring for another. The word can mean advisor. Let that one sink in as in the advisors of Nebuchadnezzar. Technically, the relationship, they were under his control. Yet, their position in his government was a position of high honor and prestige. They were his advisors. They were also his slaves. It can also mean official. So the word has a lot of different context, and it's very important that it's properly applied and we understand what the word of God is actually saying here. A slave in biblical context is a person who works under the ownership or dominating influence of another. The word describes varying levels of employment, ranging all the way from voluntary service, which is what a bond servant really is, for a period of time. The word can be used of hired help, and as we see, it can be used of forced slavery. Hebrews could choose to become slaves on their own will, because of poverty or some private disaster or debt that needed paid. So, most of the time when we're dealing with this term in the Old Testament, if I was to try to give you some picture of what it looks like in one way or another, here's what it looks like. They didn't have time clocks like we have time clocks. You didn't go to work from Monday at 8 a.m. and clock in and clock out at 4.30. Instead, you had people who had more wealth and others who did not. You had people who had lots of land and lots of land to farm and lots of cattle to take care of, and they could not take care of themselves. And so you would enter into a contract, almost like a salary position with one of these people, and you would say, I will sell myself to you. I will make a deal with you where for a certain price I work for you, but you pay me this. That would be called slavery. It's very very different than where our minds tend to go when we think about slavery. We see the idea here that a, a, a father could sell his daughter into slavery. Well, this would be a father 
most likely, in most scenarios, where rather than letting his daughter have to be, you know, go off somewhere else, he's like, we've got, we've got a, you know, family that we're close with, we've got somebody in our own community, and I will verify or make it possible for you to stay in the community, work with this family, basically like as a maid of some sort. And there was a payment that was part of that process. And one of the laws here was that the person that, you know, that says, all right, I'll hire your daughter. If that person decides, hey, your daughter ain't any good at doing what she's supposed to do. I don't want her in the house. He couldn't sell her to anybody else. She had to be, it used the word, redeemed. In other words, as long as the father was willing to pay back the money that was given to him, then daughter comes home. The point I want us to see, first and foremost, is this is so entirely different than what we think of when we, use, when we hear the word slave. What God is doing is making sure that these people who are in the position of the lower place in that relationship, he's making sure that they have laws that protect them. He's making sure that they have laws that honor them, laws that govern their masters. Consider a similar command given 1,500 years later in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, the first four verses say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, before reading the next few verses, This is the last chapter of Ephesians, and the church is being admonished that, look, your faith, it needs to impact all of your relationships. Fathers, mothers, here's how you need to treat your children. Children, here's how you need to treat your parents. And then it advances to those that are in the position of bond servants. Now, when we get to the New Testament, the the Greek has a few more words to kind of help clarify, are we talking about a forced slavery, or are we talking more like the actual, you know, term the Bible means, where a person is in debt to another, and that term is bond servant. So here we have workers in their relationship with their employers, if you will, in verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we see that this service should have some something that's done from the heart in it. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. All that I want us to see here is that clearly, this is not forced slavery. The term bondservant is in reference to some form of contractual labor. The terms bondservant and master are in reference to their role in the relationship. So, obviously, that changes things. Just understanding that alone changes things in how we look at these passages. What we have is God creating laws to protect those who are under legal obligation to their masters to repay a debt. The laws are designed to make sure that their masters don't abuse their powers during the course of time that they are in contract with their bond servants. Okay, I want to look at two more passages. Exodus 21, verse 20, and then 26 to 27, first passage, says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. 
When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, there are some that look at passages like this, and they're like, well, how could God at all even allow such a thing? Listen, listen. God's giving his people a civil government. People need civil government. We need it. Could you imagine in our own time, if instead of all the laws we had, we just had one law that governed us all? You must be good. I mean, why not? It's a great law. I mean, that would fix it all. Who gets to decide what good is? What if I think it would be good that you give me a portion of your land because it borders mine and your land is bigger than my land? And I sincerely think it would be a good thing for you to do and the law says you have to do what's good and therefore lawfully your land should be mine. What happens when sinners sin and they Don't keep the law. There must be some form of recourse. And yes, even Israel, to whom these civil laws were written to, even Israel, God's people, sinned against God. And there had to be recourse when someone did what was wrong. And what we have to see in those verses, they're kind of hard to read. They're like, well, here's what we have to see. God says, you, if you strike a, sla- a servant of yours, a slave, and that person dies, you die. That's pretty serious. He says, in fact, if you're even violent to the point that it's visible, so there's visible proof, it's not just your word versus his word out in the field, Visible proof, you got an eye busted up, tooth knocked out, something. Visible proof, servant gets to go free. It don't matter if he's only worked for you two weeks and he owes you six years of labor. You knock his tooth out, everything he owed you is done, it's paid in full, he gets to go free. That's what God is saying here. These are clearly not forced slavery where people are forced into, you know, forced labor against their will. And what God is doing is giving instructions on what needs to happen in the event things are done wrong. Also consider verse 5 of our text. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Notice the master is first. Then his master shall bring him to God. And we're going to look at that process later in this sermon. But what I want you to see for now is that this relationship was one that could develop and was expected to develop in such a way that God had to make a law around it that the servant was so connected to his master, had such respect and love for his master that he literally wanted to spend the rest of his life with his master. I don't know if it's possible to overstate how insane it is to even try to equate this type of relationship with slavery as we think of slavery. They are, they, they are so opposite. And to try to take modern day slavery, forced slavery, and then push it into this text and, and say, well, the Bible's supporting slavery is just absolutely foolish. And that's just my first of three points in my intro. Second, God is giving his people a civil government. I mean, they have no king, no government, no laws, and laws are needed to govern a sinful people. Laws are given to protect the most vulnerable, and that is exactly what God is doing with his people, is setting up a civil government. 
it was specifically to them. It was not written to all people of all time. Even though these passages are important to study, even though it's important to be able to provide a response like I'm doing this morning, here's the truth. This passage don't apply to us, folks, as far as civil laws. They don't govern us anymore. They were written to a select group of people for a select group of time on how they were to be governed for a period of time. So God's giving his people a civil government. They were applicable to the people who they were actually written to. And it's important to understand that about the Bible. While we can learn from every word in here, you need to hear this. Everything in here was not written specifically to you. Everything in here was not written specifically to us. What we're studying right now was written specifically to Israel and for a specific period of time. And it's important to understand context. Otherwise, we misunderstand and misapply the Bible. This is another time for me to insert the importance of having good pastors and teachers. Everything in the Bible is not this complicated to understand or teach. In fact, most of the Bible is not. But there are portions of it, folks. This is why we need good, solid Bible teachers and preachers to help us understand context and application of the Word of God. Otherwise, sometimes we get way off base. And number three... The third thing that's happening here is that God is communicating themes with his own people. Follow me for a moment. God is trying to teach his people about their coming Messiah. If you have been part of this Exodus study, you know that. We see the great deliverance of the firstborn. We see that people were saved through the blood of the Lamb. We see the God who is the light to his people at night and day. We see the God who parted the waters and led them through the Red Sea, the God who fed them with the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the God who fed, uh, gave them water from the rock, uh, we, we, the, the rock that was smitten. And we, we learned about all these things that point forward and are pictures to God's people of their coming Messiah. The same thing's happening here, and that's what I really want us to see this morning. The importance of this text is so often overlooked because immediately we want to argue about slavery. We want to argue about the character of God for some reason. What I want you to see is this. God's communicating themes to his people. God has given them the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Now he's given them the civil law. And it's interesting, the very first thing that God deals with in the civil law is slavery and freedom. Bondage and being set at liberty. It's what the whole book of Exodus is about. It's what these people, it's what their whole life was about. The whole entire book of Exodus is about the deliverance of God. It's about God as the good master whose servants love to serve him. It's about a theme. And what I want us to see this morning is that these verses in Exodus are less about civil government, though they are about that. They're less about how earthly masters were to treat their earthly slaves and the rights of earthly slaves with their earthly masters, though they are about that. What these verses are about are about the perfect slave, the perfect servant. They're about Jesus. These verses point out for the people of God what Jesus would look like when he came. As all of the book of Exodus, they point to Christ as the perfect servant. And I'm going to share with you this morning three reasons that the slave of Exodus 21 points us to Jesus. Number one, the character or nature of his service. It was perfect. 
I'm going to show you that in the text in Exodus 21 in just a moment. But before getting there, I want to demonstrate biblically that Jesus is the perfect servant. The word, the same exact word here for slave is repeatedly used to point to Jesus Christ. And of equal significance, every time the word is used, it's positive. It's not a negative term. It is a positive term. Let's look at these messianic prophecies. A messianic prophecy is something that points us to the Messiah. They were little clues that God gave us so that when the Messiah was here, we would be able to say, now that is him. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Leave that verse up there for a moment. I'm only going to do this one time, though I am tempted to do it over and over and over again. I won't do it because it would get exhausting. But I look at a passage like that, and I'm like, does that look like slavery to you? Is that in any way, in any capacity, like slavery the way we think of forced slavery? Behold, my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, I'm not going to do that every single verse, but I'm telling you, I could. Every single verse, I could read it and be like, is that really what you think slavery is? Is that really what you think slavery is? The answer is no, and this is why context matters in the Bible, and it understands how to properly apply the application of words. But that's just one of the prophecies. Let's look, let's look at a few other. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 53 and 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In Philippians 2 and 5, you and I as the people of God, we are told to have the, Christ of mind, the, the, the mind of Christ, to put on the mind of Christ. Well, then the verses that follow us teach us what the mind of Christ is. In verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2, it says, He emptied himself by taking the form of, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I'm telling you this morning, folks, is that Jesus is the perfect servant. And by perfect, what I mean by that is complete in every way. Consider Jesus' words of himself. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. His entire ministry can be summed up from this one statement in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. To his disciples, Jesus said this in Luke twenty two twenty seven, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is the perfect servant. Now, I've said that the character of his service was perfect. And biblically, that word perfect, it means mature. It means complete. It's, it's, it's to the point that there is nothing lacking. In our text, we read it. Here's what it said. That the, that the servant, or the slave, was to serve for six years. And then the seventh year, he was to go free. Elsewhere, God actually ends up giving more instructions for the master. 
in the event a servant leaves at the seventh year, and the master was actually to send the servant with all sorts of things to build his home and, and to live off of. So this wasn't like, well, you serve for six years, you walk away with nothing. It's, I, as I've said over and over again, completely, totally, entirely different than what we think of with the word slavery. But after six years, and that's significant, the servant was able to go free. In the Bible, the number six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. In the book of Revelation, I think chapter 13 and verse 5, it points out for us who the Antichrist is, and it tells us he is the number of man, and that number is 666. What is in mind here with these six years of service is that man owes his owner a degree of service. That there is something that humanity owes God as service. Now, what is that that we owe God? What is it that mankind owes his maker? What is our responsibility? We might answer unqualified submission, total subjection to him, complete obedience to his known will. Well, what is the will of God? You probably sum it up in two statements. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is, none of us have done it. And when you really understand what's happening here, you realize there's not a single one of us that could serve the full six years. There is no earthly, perfect servant. We, are, we all fall short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus is the perfect servant. He is the one who came and completed what was required by the law. He is the one who came and did for us what we could not do. And what we see that God's pointing forward to, what God's telling his people here, is that there is a cost. There is a moment when the law is satisfied and the law no longer has claims upon a person. The debt has been paid in full and satisfied so even the master no longer has claim over debt. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is Jesus is a perfect servant. He paid our debt in full. He came and he lived the perfect life. He kept the law flawlessly, but beyond just keeping the law, he died in our stead. He paid the cost that was ours to pay. He paid the debt that was ours to pay so that you and I could enter into the seventh year of freedom where we could be free in the sight of God because our debt has been paid in full. Jesus is the perfect servant. Jesus did this for us all. He served the master perfectly, fulfilling the law so that we might go free. So Jesus is the perfect servant first because the character of his service was perfect. Secondly, Jesus is the perfect servant because the motive of his service was love. In verses 5 and 6 of our text, it says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master. Notice the masters first. It's not, I love my wife and my children, so I'm going to stick around and serve no matter what. It's, I love the master first. My wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. After satisfying the debt, the slave could choose to stay for life if he Loved his master. Now for the sake of this sermon and the sake of time, I'm just going to blow past wife and children. Obviously Jesus didn't have a physical wife and physical children. 
There are sometimes you can take analogies and push them too far. There are some who believe that the wife is the reference to Israel, the children are the reference to the church. It does not actually matter for the sake of the sermon this morning, and so I've chosen to just not address the wife and the children. But what I want us to see is that the perfect servant of Exodus chapter 21 actually loves his master so much that he chooses to serve him for life out of the motivation of love. At this point, the motive of the servant becomes publicly and unmistakably a motive of love. No longer is the servant there because he has to pay a debt. Now, the servant is no longer obligated, but he is there because he chooses to stay and because he loves his master. Love has taken over. I want you to hear me this morning because it impacts the last point that we're going to see. Love demands service. We always serve what we love. We always serve who we love. Jesus is the perfect servant because his motive was always love. His motive was only love. The very debt he paid was ours. Jesus didn't even have a debt to pay, folks. So what would motivate him to come and pay our debt? The answer is love. Love for the Father. Love to do the Father's will, but also love for us. We were, as the Bible calls us, the joy that was set before Him. Look what it says in Revelation 1.5 about Jesus. From Jesus Christ, who loved us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. In Galatians 2.20, we see that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and Gave himself for me. There we see love and service tied together. In 1 John 4.19 we are told that we love because he first loved us. In John chapter 13 through 17 which we're studying now on Wednesday nights. John 13 through 17 all of those chapters are about the last night of Jesus' life. It's the most exhaustive section of scripture about one night. And if you're interested in studying it we're studying it right now on Wednesday nights. But on the last night of Jesus' life, 31 times while he's teaching his disciples, he references love. It was love that motivated Jesus to pay our debt. It was love that motivated Jesus to be the perfect servant. Love to his father, his master foremost, but it was the ever-controlling motive in the life of the perfect servant. When the servant could have gone free. The Bible teaches us he could have called 10,000 legions of angels if he wanted to. The Bible teaches us that no man took his life, but he willingly laid it down. When he could have gone free, love motivated him to serve the Father's will and to serve the Father's house, to love us because the Father loved us. Jesus' love is what motivated him to be the perfect servant. So Jesus is the perfect servant first because the character of his service was perfect. Second, because the motive of his service was love. And finally, and third this morning, we also see in our text, The duration of his service was forever. In Exodus 21, verses 5 through 6, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. We're going to deal with that. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. A couple things I want us to note here. The boring of the ear was a public, visible mark that showed this man has committed his life forever to serving this master and the master's house. You know what marks Jesus has forever? 
to show who he has made the decision to serve forever, the father in the father's house. He's got scars through his wrists and a scar in his side. You remember Thomas who doubted. Thomas had heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And uh, we learned something about the resurrection of Christ. That even in the resurrection, God in his divine sovereignty chose to leave the marks of his crucifixion. We read it in uh, verse 27 of John 20. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So one of the things that Jesus did to help Thomas get over his unbelief was he showed him the physical signs of his crucifixion. And we see this symbolic here in the slave who has a a hole driven through his ear, that there would be this public, visible sign for life that he was forever dedicated to serving his master's house. The doorpost. That's where it was to happen at. The door or the doorpost. The doorpost is a sign of personal limits. Your door at your house is a place where only family can enter. And those that you deem close enough, you would treat them as family. It is the place that anyone else to come in, they have to knock. They have to set an appointment. But when the slave would have his life committed to his master, there was something that's happening together at that moment. Not only is the slave saying, I commit to you forever, the master says, come to my door, and that's where we're going to do this ceremony. And when this ceremony takes place, and you commit yourself to me for life, my house becomes your house, my door becomes your door, and you are welcome in this home anytime that you want. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ said that he is the door. And here's what that means for us, that he, as the perfect servant, has opened the door for you and I to enter into the family of God, into the house of God forever. He is the perfect servant. And the last word I want us to look at in this statement is the word forever. And I will tell you this week, when I was studying this, this piece uh, man, I was, I was moved, and I pray the Holy Spirit will touch your heart like He did mine. Forever. That's what it says. He shall be His slave forever. By choice, motivated by love, forever. Now, these next three verses I want to show you, I have had some degree of concept of through the years. That right now, Right now, even after it's all done, even after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, right now, the Bible teaches us Jesus is serving us. That part I know. Look what Romans 8.34 says. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay? I knew that. Jesus right now is working on my behalf. And I don't know about you. I do know about you. We all need Christ interceding on our behalf. I need it. You need it. And we are taught that he is. In 1 John 2, 1, it's kind of said another way, but same theory. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is advocating on our behalf to his Father. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. So even now, the perfect servant is still serving the Father and the Father's house. But there is a marvelous passage that teaches us about the everlasting service of Jesus towards us in heaven. And I will be honest, for this week, it, 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 I, would, I would say this may be the first time I've ever seen it like I saw it this week. 
Jesus. You know, in my mind, once we finally get to heaven, it's all us worshiping him the whole time. And he just sits on the throne and, and we finally, because we don't need, you know, we don't need his interceding for us anymore. We're finally rid of our sinful nature. We just get to completely serve him. Look what Jesus said about it, though, in Luke 12. Stay dressed for action. and Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Even in the kingdom, he will serve us. But how can that be? Our feet are not going to need washed as Jesus washes disciples' feet on the last night. All of our needs are going to be met. The reason that he will serve us is not because there is need on our part. It is because of love on his. And real love demands service. And I saw for the first time this week the reality that heaven is so vastly greater than what we can ever imagine. And that it's about loving one another. We will certainly serve him, but he has told us he's going to serve us too. Not because we need it, but out of this heart of love. How great is this that in the kingdom... He will be seated upon the throne of His glory. He will be holding the reins of government. He will be acknowledged as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet, He will delight to minister to us. He will serve forever. It will be the eternal activity of divine love. Delighting to serve those whom He's died for. I will say it again. Jesus is... The perfect servant. We're going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. In these laws, can I say something else, by the way? When you look at the depth of what's really going on here and you see what God's really trying to communicate to his people, it's no wonder the devil wants us to get off on stupid non-topics that have nothing to do with this passage at all and argue about things that are just ridiculous because he doesn't want us to see the depth of the divine love of Jesus the divine wisdom of God how rich the word of God is as it points us to the perfect servant I'm reminded of Jesus uh, on the on the road to Emmaus with his disciples and it says that beginning with Moses and the prophets that he opened up the word of God and that he expanded to them and I quote all things concerning himself Jesus is like, I was here, I was here, I was here. I was the water at the rock. I was the bread from heaven. I was the perfect servant. It was all about me. And in these laws, we see the divine, perfect servant. This morning, if you are here, you're struggling with does God love you? I, I don't know how else to prove it. Jesus came as the perfect servant to pay your debt. To die your death. To be crucified in your stead. To satisfy what you owed God. Jesus said, I'll pay it for you. There is nothing that anybody can do and nothing that anybody else will ever do to demonstrate how much you are loved by God this morning. And if you've never really surrendered your heart to the Lord, I plead with you to do it today. Listen, you do not need to understand it all. You don't need to be able to open up God's Word. And explain it like I did this morning. You don't need to be able to do that. 
to be saved. What you need to do, you need to know that you know that you know that God's dealing with your heart. That Jesus is the Son of God. And you need to just place your faith in Jesus. That means believe in Him. Believe on Him. Believe what He says. And make a decision in the depth of your soul that you're going to live for Him. Not because you owe it. Because the debt's been paid. But that because He first loved you, you love Him. And you want to live for Him. And this morning, if you're here, you've, you haven't done that. Or you're in a place where maybe you think you have, but you're not real sure. And you're just something's off in your relationship with God. I plead with you this morning in a moment when we begin to sing and worship I plead with you to find your way out of your seat make your way up here to one of these aisles and just kneel before God and just be honest with God to the church this morning you know on one hand we we need to be sincerely overwhelmed with how much Jesus has done for us how much the perfect servant loves the Father and loves God's people and how much Jesus has loved us. But I want us to close with one last look at this passage and consider how all this applies to you and I that are saved. Philippians 2, 5, 6, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, the mind of Christ. This is the mind you are to have among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The perfect servant says to those of us that are saved this morning, he says, follow me. Empty yourselves. Humble yourselves. Take on the form of a servant. Serve people. Serve God first and foremost. Serve people.